Amen. You may be seated. If you would, put on your doctor's hat. I'm going to ask for your diagnosis. Headaches. Dry mouth. Less appetite. Extreme fatigue. Nausea. Stomach pain. Shortness of breath. A mind that just constantly races. A heart that tries to keep pace and races as well. Some nights insomnia. Other nights and mornings and maybe days sleep, sleep, and more sleep. Mixed up sleep cycles. Weight loss or maybe weight gain. Dizziness, brain fog, inflammation, a vulnerable immune system, shock and disbelief, waves, waves of sadness, bursts of anger, silence, resentment, Feelings of guilt. Feelings of fear. Doctor, what's your diagnosis? These are the symptoms. Do any of these symptoms describe you? Maybe more than one or two. Do they describe you? My suspicion is that many, if not most, all of us are experiencing at least a few, if not many, of these various symptoms. But doctor, what's your diagnosis? What are these symptoms of? It's a short, but it's a powerful word. Grief. Grief. G-R-I-E-F. Grief. Grief over the loss or the possible loss of a loved one. Grief for those who've been hurting so bad because of such a loss. Grief over the loss of a job. Grief over the loss of your senior year, prom and graduation. Grief over the loss of your community and friends. Grief over the loss of a move. Grief over the loss of a business that you have poured your blood, your sweat, and your tears, and your money into, and your, and your dreams, and there's the loss of a dream. Grief for the loss of respect for others that you once had. Grief for the loss of a loving relationship that's now either battered and raw or it's, or it's cold and it's hard. Over these past several, several weeks, I've been praying. I've been praying about being a faithful pastor to you all. I've been praying about being a faithful preacher of God's glorious good word to you and to people during this pandemic. I've been seeking, as I've been thinking and praying and meditating upon these things, I've been seeking to address your fears and your doubts, 
your bewilderment, and all the other affections and emotions that you've been experiencing or maybe experiencing now, that you've been battling. I've been seeking to address those through God's glorious and His gracious and His marvelous and His powerful Word. And as you know, I've been doing so through the Psalms and, and through the Gospel of Matthew. But as I've been praying and as I've been meditating, particularly over the past couple of weeks, I've realized that there's been one thing that I, that, that I haven't really addressed, I haven't tackled in great depth. And yet I suspect it's something that we are all battling to some extent. And that's something is grief. G-R-I-E-F. Now I don't presume to delve fully or completely into such a deep and such a complex uh, subject. Particularly don't presume to be able to do that in, in, in but two sermons. I, I, don't, I don't presume upon, upon that, upon, upon a subject that's so deeply personal and one that we experience differently, right? Somewhat differently from one another. But nor do I want to deal with it flippantly, superficially, dismissively. No, I want to address it. I want to address it well. I want to address it honestly. I want to address it hopefully. But I can't do that from my own thoughts. I can't do that from my own words. But I can do that. I can address it well, and I can address it honestly, and I can address it hopefully if I take you to God's Word. And so I take you to God's Word today. Not, not in the Psalms, not in the Gospel of Matthew, but I'd ask for you to turn in your Bibles to the epistle of Paul, his first epistle to the Thessalonians. I, I take you, and I ask you to go there with me, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Give your attention to God's Word. God's Word in which there is found an honest answer, which is, is found a hopeful answer to grief. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who fall asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. The Word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be unto God. Now, brothers and sisters, the Bible says so much more about grief than this one passage gives us. But this one passage gives us so much to meditate upon. Walk with me, with the Apostle Paul, through this valley of grief. And as we walk through this valley of grief, notice these things. Notice what Paul is telling us about grief. He's telling us about the reality of grief. He's telling us that therefore, for Christians, there's a restriction to be placed upon our grief. He's giving us, beautifully so, responses to grief. And lastly, he is showing us the resolution to all grief. Those are the four things I want us to meditate upon this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday when we gather together again. First then, the reality of grief. If you know much about the Scriptures, you know this. They are brutally honest. The Bible is brutally honest. There's no sugarcoating that goes on in the words of Holy Scripture. There's no sweeping under the rug things that are uncomfortable to talk about. No. There are no wishing bad things away by wishing upon a star. No. There's no warped denial of pain. There's no warped denial of suffering. There's no warped denial of grief. And so notice, Paul doesn't deny and he doesn't wish away grief. He acknowledges it. Now, although he's got more to say, the first thing that we must see is that he acknowledges the reality of grief. It is very real, and no doubt you are all to some extent experiencing it now. Calvin was right when he once wrote, people who abuse this testimony, this testimony of Paul, people who abuse this testimony and make a class of Stoics among Christians who view everything with hard indifference will find no comfort in the words of Paul. He is not going to treat grief with with indifference. He's going to address it, the reality of it, and he's going to bring pastoral, encouraging comfort. There are no denials. There's no hard indifference. The Thessalonians were grieving. And Paul acknowledges it. And brothers and sisters, I acknowledge your grief. I acknowledge your struggle with grief. Now, why were the Thessalonians grieving? Well, it seems clear that these Thessalonians that he's addressing had... Family members, they had friends, they they had brothers and sisters in Christ who had what? They had died. And it seems that these Thessalonians did know the, the, the biblical teaching, the biblical doctrine, the doctrine of the apostles, that Jesus Christ is going to come again. There is going to be a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it seems as if these Thessalonians aren't quite so certain about what happens to believers who die before he comes again. It seems as if they've got this idea that 
only those who are alive when Christ comes again will be able to experience His great reign over all of creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. That, that, that only those who are alive when He comes again will experience, experience the blessings of such a kingdom. It seems as if they think that those who don't make it till He comes again, those who die or perish before He comes, are resigned to, at best, gloomy shadows. Now Paul is going to, he's going to correct their, their misunderstanding or the, their misguided notions. But notice this, he doesn't deny their pain. In, in the helping them understand, come to a better understanding, he still acknowledges their pain. He still acknowledges their suffering. He still acknowledges their grief. He faces up to it, as we all should. Grief is real. Your grief is real. Denying its presence is no relief. No relief. Before the beginning of March, I wonder how much room our society, our culture, our American affluent society really had for grief. Yeah, maybe, maybe the, the grief over the death of, of, uh, of a really dear loved one. But even then, it seems as if our culture wants to uh, just sweep that sort of thing under the rug. I mean, think about our culture's, uh, our, our cultural incessant need to be entertained, to, to, to recreate. Now, brothers and sisters, there, there is a place for entertainment. There is a place for recreation. But I think Neil Postman was on to something when, when he, he gave a book, an ironic title, We Were Amusing Ourselves to Death. Well, that was before March. Now we're past March. And for the most part, there's no hiding from loss. There's no hiding from death. There's no hiding from, from grief. It's real, dear ones. It's real. Be it the grief of a wife, as a minister recalls, the grief of this wife watching helplessly, watching her husband's life wither away to cancer. He was a good man in his early 40s. He was the father of two children. He was committed to Christ. He was committed to his family. He was committed to the church. He was committed to ministry. And there he was dying. And her husband's dying pushed this wife to the borders of her faith. What could? What love? What, what meaning could she find in the death of this young husband and this young father? How could God let this happen? Be it grief like that, or be it the grief of our very own young covenant children who don't understand why they can't be here on Sunday morning in Miss Vicky's Sunday school class. And they hurt. No matter which it is, no matter where it falls on the, on the spectrum, dear ones, it's real. And thankfully, Paul doesn't deny its reality. But notice, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
Paul doesn't then let grief become an absolute monarch over the life of, of Christians. No, he places, he gives, he gives us notice of a restriction that's placed upon the grief of Christians, right? The grief we experience, the grief we express. What does he say in verse 13? But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have hope. He doesn't tell you that you can't grieve, but he does tell you that you can't grieve as others do who do not have hope. There is a restraint there's a restriction to your grief. Now we will see that hope soon, Lord willing, but for now, Christian, just see that according to Paul, ongoing grief is not to be omnipotent in your life. You can grieve. Christian, you can, you will, and you can grieve differently than those around you. Now for secularists, this life is all there is. For the secularist, a loss of job or a loss of relationship or of health or of life, that's it. There's nothing else. And dear ones, that's how so many of our culture think. And because they do, when grief comes, it comes as a despot. It comes as a tyrant. It comes as one that devours, that consumes them. But it doesn't have to be that way with you. And it should not be that way with us. But before we get to the why it doesn't have to be that way and it shouldn't be with us, let's notice the responses to grief that Paul shows us here in these verses. First, notice Paul's response. I want you to notice his tone, and then I want you to notice his words. Notice he's writing to Christians. He's writing to these Christians in Thessalonica so long ago. He's writing to them who were, were grieving. And how does he address them? What does he call them? but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. Please note the affection in that word. Please note his affectionate tone. Now hopefully as Christians, we know, we know to be tender. We know to be caring. We know to be compassionate. We know to be affectionate with fellow believers who are grieving. We know to be. But the question is, are we? Are we tender? Are we compassionate? Are we patient? Are we, are we affectionate? Does our heart go out to a person, a brother or sister in Christ who's grieving? Does our heart go out to them because they are our brother and sister and because they're hurting? Do our hearts go out that way, especially when a person's grief messes with our timetable? Or a person's grief isn't in line with the way we process things? 
or they are grieving over something that just doesn't register to us. Let me give you a for instance. He who has ears, let him hear. Is sharing a meme about soldiers missing school graduations because they were called off to war, is sharing such a meme the most caring thing that you can say to a high school senior who isn't able to experience her high school graduation? Paul's tone is affectionate. Is yours? Is my tone affectionate? Don't let us be tone deaf. By God's grace, let us be kind. Second, notice a phrase that Paul uses here as he responds to the grieving. How does he describe believers who've died? Does he say, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who died? No, what's he say? We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. Now, many, both in ancient times and in our times, many use sleeping as a euphemism for dying or being dead. They, they use it as, as a means of softening something that's harsh, that's hard. And yet, dear ones, I'm not sure if it's a euphemism here. I'm not sure if being asleep, being said to be asleep, is a euphemism for Christians. Don't get me wrong. Yes, dying can be horrific. Some people go through years of pain and agony. And death can indeed, the, the dying process can be horrific. But hasn't Jesus defeated death itself? And hasn't he thus removed the sting of death for believers? And hasn't he therefore transformed it for the body of believers? And hasn't he transformed death for the bodies of believers into rest in the grave? And hasn't he transformed death for the souls of believers into a portal by which we go through to be in the direct presence of our triune, glorious, gracious God? Isn't death, because of what Jesus has done, isn't death like the great poet John Donne put it? John Donne, that great English poet, his most famous sonnet, Holy Sonnet 10. It begins with these two lines. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. And that sonnet ends with these two lines. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. One short sleep past, we wake eternally. Isn't that what Jesus has made death to be for you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? One short close of the eyes, one short sleep, and then you awake eternally. Now, how has Jesus done this? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? Jesus has done this because Jesus, what? Fell asleep. Did you notice? He doesn't say that. 
Jesus died. Jesus died. For since we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died. Again, notice, he doesn't say Jesus fell asleep. There's no metaphor for death for Jesus. Because he suffered death in its utter horror. He suffered death in its utter horror even as he defeated death. As the old commentator Leon Morris put it simply, he endured the worst that death can possibly be. He endured the worst that death can possibly be. He died so that death itself would be for you, Christian, but one short sleep passed and you wake eternally. Yes, Jesus died. But he also did what? Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection of Jesus was that great fact, that great event in the middle of history which demonstrated fully that death was really conquered and one day death would be completely vanquished. And it's that event, it's that truth that guarantees our Christian hope. Christ is risen. Notice, notice the apostles' tender responses, both in tone and in word, to grieving Thessalonian brothers. And finally for today, notice that this encouragement wasn't just to come from Paul. What does he say in verse 18? Encourage one another with these words. Now, we're going to see next time, Lord willing, the full extent of those words. We're going to see next time all those words that we will use, words and truths that, that they describe as we find them in verses 14 through 17, and words that will, yes, be about the second coming of Christ, so don't miss next week's sermon. But for now, remember that these words that we encourage one another with include these words, Jesus died and rose again. Jesus died and rose again. You see, in the darkness and in the pain and in the suffering and the hell that our Savior suffered and defeated, our suffering, our loss, our grief is met. You see, He knows our loss far more than we do. He knows our suffering and our pain, far more than we ever can. He knows, dear ones, our grief, our death, far greater than we will ever. And He chose all that for us. Not only did He choose it, He's victorious over it. And through it, He transforms it for us. And so the responsibility is now ours to use such words with one another. We must speak tenderly these words with one another as we grieve. 
We need to speak them. You need to speak them. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. You need to speak them. But you also need to hear them. Believe we are all, as I've said, that we're all grieving to some extent or another. And as we do, please recognize this central point. We are not to grieve alone. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God has given to us, dear ones, one another. He has given you to me, and He's given me to you. Yes, sometimes we we want others just to sit silently with us in our grief. And there's time for that. But we also know we need gospel words. We also know we need the words of eternal life. We also need the words of Gethsemane and Golgotha and the garden tomb. We need to hear, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We need to hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to hear, it is finished. And we need to hear, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Dear ones, we cannot do this alone. We cannot do this alone. The Holy Spirit uses us, frail as we are, as many mistakes as we make, the Holy Spirit uses us to bless and encourage others with these words. And the Holy Spirit means for us to be blessed, to be encouraged through these words spoken by those who love us. I need to hear those words. You need to hear those words. Our brothers and sisters need to hear those words. There is hope for the grieving, and that hope comes through these words. Jesus died. Jesus died and rose again. Brothers and sisters, let's get at it. Please, this week, make every attempt you can to share such gospel words with others. And when others are sharing them with you, please receive them. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be an encouragement to one another in our grief. For we pray this in Christ's name.